Hello, and welcome to this IFG event on how the UK can ensure a smooth transition to electric vehicles. Uh, we're very pleased to be holding this in partnership with the Forum at Imperial College. Uh, my name's Tom Sass. I'm an associate director here at IFG, and I lead our work on Net Zero. Um, so the switch to electric vehicles is going to be one of the flagship elements of the government's plans for a net zero transition. And in some ways, it's beginning to look like a policy success story. We've got booming sales of electric vehicles. Uh, we've got an ambitious 2030 target for phasing out the sale of petrol and diesel cars. That's been backed up by some subsidies. Um, uh, and we've also got a new zero uh, emission vehicle mandate on manufacturers. So we've got a bunch of sort of policy action, and we've got some, some real movement in the sector. We're all beginning to see these cars pop up on our streets. But if you lift the, lift the bonnet, there are some challenges with this transition. Uh, there's a really complicated charging infrastructure rollout, which we need to get right all across the country. Uh, and there's also this issue of fairness and who's benefiting. Today, we've just read that uh, filling up the, the car with petrol is costing £100 for an average uh, person. So there's this issue of who's benefiting from switching to electric vehicles and who's able to, to join this transition. Um, so a lot to do to keep it smoothly on track. Uh, and lots of challenges from things like planning barriers to financing charging infrastructure, uh, rolling out things in, in the electricity networks, and also how to broaden the consumer market. Uh, I've got a great panel to discuss all of that. So Dr. Aruna Sivakumar is director of the Urban Systems Lab uh, at Imperial College and works on consumer behavior and transport systems. Philip New just stepped down as chief executive uh, of Energy Systems Catapult, who do an awful lot of work in this area. Before that, he spent a career at BP, and also, very helpfully, he's chair of the UK's EV Energy Task Force. Uh, on the screen on the left, we have uh, Professor David Bailey. Uh, David is Professor of Business Economics at the University of Birmingham, uh, a senior fellow at the UK in a Changing Europe think tank, uh, and a big uh, uh, does a lot of work on the auto industry uh, and, and a in real interest there. Uh, and fourth, we have Jeremy Yap. So Jeremy is head of flexible energy systems at BEMA. BEMA is the UK trade association for energy infrastructure technologies and systems. Uh, and Jeremy previously worked in business and as a civil servant. So how this is going to work, I'm going to ask uh, my panel a few opening questions, have a bit of discussion between them. <coughs> We're going to have plenty of time for questions from you, uh, both in the room and watching online. Um, if you're in the room, please just put your hand up when I uh, come to you and do start thinking. Those online, please start submitting your questions now. Uh, please keep them short and do upvote any that you like so we can get through as many as possible. Um, we'll also be tweeting using the hashtag IFGNetZero if anyone wants to tweet along. So Aruna, I'm going to start with you. Um, how would you characterize where we are now in terms of the UK's transition to electric vehicles? I'm going to give me my perspective much more from my research angle, which is very much about understanding travel demand, travel behavior, mobility requirements and needs. So the demand perspective. And as you've already mentioned, uh, there's clearly been a rapid growth, especially over the pandemic years and 2022 sustainably in electric vehicle adoption for a number of reasons, <clears throat> including and, and perhaps even foremost, the, the upcoming ban. Um, and so from that perspective, there's clearly the right trajectory in terms of the growth of electric vehicles in the market. Um, at the same time, though, I worry, I guess, and, and I'm sure I'm not the only one because there's several policies under consideration in many different departments, um, that from the demand perspective, the fundamental considerations, the barriers, if you will, for electric vehicle adoption that have been evolving over time, some of those remain and are a significant issue, primarily one of cost. And um, until the point where cost is no longer an issue, that adoption is not a trivial one. The adoption curve is not a trivial one. And this, is a, this issue is perhaps further exacerbated by the fact that from the consumer perspective, there's this upcoming uncertainty about electricity prices. And what's going to happen to that? How much is it going to cost me to charge? Will there be a sudden increase in charging prices, lots of uncertainty there, which is going to leave a lot of consumers really uncertain. And so unless there are the right policies, um, there's very, very, very possibly once you get through, we've already got, obviously got through the early adopters. We're now going through 
those who are um, willing to risk it and try, um, even though they may not otherwise be risk takers. But you've, you've got a large, amount of, large proportion of the population who's still fairly reluctant and are gonna adopt it only if it's appropriate or suitable or affordable as the case may be. And um, I think my concern is there might be habits or uh, practices such as reluctance to let go of their, um, of their fossil fuel vehicle unless you have the right policies coming into place. But at the same time, those policies, um, if and when they come into place, need to account for equitability or the lack thereof. I mean, are we basically forcing a certain behavior on sections of the society who simply cannot afford it? And then how will that be dealt with? So I think being able to balance consumer concerns about cost, the future of electricity pricing, um, equitability is, is, is the big challenge that we're going to be facing as in every other way, things, to be on an up, things seem to be on an upswing. That's fascinating. And I think I've, I've read that um, about 40% of UK drivers say their next vehicle will be electric, mm -hmm. right? Which, on, on the one hand, that's quite encouraging. You know, mm -hmm. that's quite a large uh, sort of chunk of the market that is willing to sort of do this, as you say. But on the other hand, we've got quite a lot of people who are probably unsure. The information isn't quite out there. Yes. Do you think, are we able to sort of dr drill down into those groups who are unsure and understand exactly which barriers it, it, it is? Is it upfront costs or is it kind of concern about charging or electricity, things like that? I think one of, one of the many things that ought to be a part of the campaign is more information and awareness. Um, more information and awareness targeted at segments that are going to be mostly just reactive. Um, I think early information was targeted at people who were either geeks or were willing to, to you know, engage in something new. Um, not that geeks are a bad thing. I've been a right. called a geek all my life, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but then um, I think the key is, and this is true, I mean, I've been doing recent research on electrification in many developing countries as well, and th there's, a, there's a scale difference in the amount of awareness. I'm not saying there isn't awareness, but I think there's still... If you're going to reach out to every corner of the society, I think a lot more information awareness in an accessible manner will be mm -hmm. essential. And uh, perhaps the ability to experience as well. We had a, a very interesting study actually with Shell, as I was uh, telling one of my colleagues, way in the early stage of, of uh, the electric vehicle revolution, this was back in 2012 or so. And it was very forward thinking of Shell at that time because they were exploring um, what are the barriers to electric vehicle adoption. And we had a study uh, where we actually had people experience uh, using an electric vehicle for two or three days and then studied how the, that impacts perception of barriers or comfort with charging and so on. And, um, and it, it, it does make a difference. There are certain aspects in terms of range, in terms of charging, it makes a huge difference. And I'd love to expand that study, but I think information awareness is a big part of that. Uh, but charging infrastructure, you mentioned it briefly, and I'm sure it'll come it'll back come multiple that, yeah. times, so yeah. I'll, I'll hold on And just that. since you mentioned the international picture there, I just wanted to ask you about this supply chain crunch that's going on at the moment. So we've, we've heard that sort of people, you know, being told certainly not gonna be able to buy an electric vehicle this year if you haven't got one ordered already. Um, is your expectation that that is, you know, we're going through this difficult period at the moment, but that is going to be resolved reasonably easily over the coming years, or actually is that something that we could be living with for, for a few more years and could impact this transition as well? To be honest, I'm probably not the best person to answer that question. Okay. I'll refer that to yeah. my panel members. Well, and perhaps David might want to pick that one up as well with your knowledge of the, the auto industry. So David, if I come on to you, um, how's the automotive industry responded to this transition, both in the, in the UK in particular, I suppose, and, and these policy packages that have been brought through by government? Well, just picking up on what Aruna uh, was saying there, uh, it's estimated that around one in four cars sold this year in the UK will be plug-ins. Uh, probably one in five will be pure battery electrics. Similar figures in the EU uh, and China not far behind. So in those sort of three big markets, uh, the EV transition is, is well underway. What's driving that is the fact that costs are coming down rapidly, uh, particularly in terms of battery costs. So it wasn't that long ago that batteries would cost something like $350 per kilowatt hour, now down to 140. Probably doesn't mean much to most people, but the magic figure is $100 per kilowatt hour. At that point, the battery electric car outcompetes the internal combustion engine. Now, it's thought we will get to that point somewhere between 2023, 2028, depending on all sorts of other things around the costs of some of the materials going into batteries. But basically, after 2025, there really won't be much reason to buy an internal combustion engine. 
Um, so that's the point where we like to get to parity. We're going to get much more rapid takeoff, and that's going to raise a whole load of issues around the charging infrastructure and also how the government raises its revenue because it, it won't be raising nearly as much from, from fuel duty, for example. Um, the chip shortage that you mentioned, it was hoped that that would be ameliorating about now because of extra capacity coming on stream. This is a kind of kind of long COVID effect, uh, in a sense. The car industry cancelled a lot of chip orders, put itself at the back of the queue and has struggled to, to get chips in. Um, but the war with Ukraine is having a big impact on that as 50% of the world's chip-grade neon gas comes from Ukraine, and that is used to control the lasers that cut the chips. So the chip shortage is set to continue, I think, at least until next year. We don't know how long, of course, that awful war in, in Ukraine will last. So costs are coming down. On the supply side, lots of new electric cars coming to market. We can see them all around us. I was out in Dublin this morning spotting um, lots of electric cars, um, many of them coming from China. Uh, if you look at some of the best-selling cars in the country, the Tesla Model 3, uh, the Model Y, uh, some of the MG models, regularly you'll see two or three of the best 10 best-selling cars in the UK now from China. And China will set, I think, the global standard in terms of making electric cars cheaply. So unless the European and UK industry changes quickly, it, it, it will face an existential challenge, I think. Um, the plants in the UK are on quite different trajectories. Big investment going into Nissan, which is great. Honda, as we know, is closed. Um, question marks about Toyota in terms of the hybrid models they produce um, over in, in Derbyshire. Big questions about JLR as well, about how many electric cars they'll make in the UK. So we've got these challenges of getting to 2030 in terms of encouraging consumers to switch over. But ideally, I'd like to get to 2030 with many people driving electric cars and many of them made in the UK. And that's going to be an even bigger challenge. One of the big, big challenges uh, post-Brexit is that the Trade and Cooperation Agreement says that after 2026, the battery has to come from the UK or the EU. Otherwise, a car going between them will face a tariff. So there's this massive race underway to build giga factories uh, and the UK is lagging badly behind on that speculation at the moment for example that JLR may be sourcing batteries from Scandinavia or Germany will it bring them to the UK to make cars I can see them making them in Slovakia for example so big question about whether we can retain a car industry in the UK as we go towards an electric future and a big questions I think about what we call a just transition both for consumers as Aruna was referring to can some of the poorest people in society access what is currently an expensive technology, but also to reorientate the supply chain um, and to shift it towards an electric supply chain and value chain. So um, big, big opportunities, but also very big challenges. That's a really interesting point you've brought in there on, on, the, on the jobs point and the sort of the just transition point, I suppose, David. I mean, what are the things you, you mentioned there that were lagging behind on, on gigafactories? And obviously, we've got the sort of headwinds of Brexit and you know potential trade barriers there. What are the things that the government could be doing on that question to try and sort of capture more of the benefits of this transition for sort of UK manufacturing? Yeah, I, th I think they need much more of a focused industrial policy in that area. The government seems to be rowing back from industrial policy. Sadly, the government set aside I think 800 to a billion, 800 million to a billion pounds to attract investment into gigafactories. That is. You know, welcome, but peanuts. If you look at the money available through the European Battery Alliance and also individual European countries, huge support for investment into battery uh, plants and massive investment going in across the EU. So we are lagging badly behind. The investment announced by, Stellantis, by um, uh, Nissan in conjunction with its partner Envision of Sunderland kind of got us off the starting grid but we are several laps behind. And this is a huge challenge in the West Midlands where I live because there was hopes of getting a battery plant in to underpin car production at Jaguar Land Rover. So far that hasn't happened. Uh, and there's a very real fear that actually th that investment could bypass the region. So it's also a big issue as well in terms of leveling up. You know, if you want to develop these new industries of the future, we need to be doing more to support that. Yeah, brilliant. And we're gonna come on to what the EV transition can do for leveling up more broadly as we talk about who's, who's taking them up. Uh, Phil, let me come on to you. Um, is our energy system ready for this transition? Uh, yeah, weighty, weighty question. <laughs> um, uh, so I think what I'm going to try and do is provide a little bit of context and some scale, yeah. and then talk about some of the some of the some of the issues. Um, so I don't think you should look at the preparation of the energy system 
for electrification of transport in isolation. You, you have to view it as part of the general requirements that are going to be placed on the electricity system in, in, in support of uh, achieving the CB6 goals in 2035. They are mind-bogglingly challenging from an electricity system point of view. Let's just remind ourselves, complete decarbonization of the grid by 2035, uh, achieving a 78% reduction in carbon emissions overall, which is what a few years ago we were saying we would do by 2050. We're going to bring forward 15 years. That means the effective electrification of pretty much everything that you can electrify, given that it's going to take us longer to get at the harder to decarbonize uh, parts of the economy. Right. So a massive amount of urgency and challenge for uh, the whole electrical ele ele electrical system in the UK. Um, what does that mean? Uh, so in the EV task force and with the catapult, we've done a load of modelling to try and understand what needs to happen to our system. Uh, between now and 2035. Uh, so just to put a little bit of uh, context around this. So we think that, uh, you know, today we're using, what, 280 terawatt hours of uh, electricity in, in, in the country, roughly, roughly. Uh, we think that's going to grow to somewhere between 420 and 450 uh, over, over the next 12 or, or 13 years. So significant increase in the amount of electricity that we use, therefore a significant amount, increase in the amount of generation capacity that we have. Uh, and of course, if a lot of that's renewable, that means that the capacity is even much is significantly greater uh, than the demand for electricity itself. Um, of the 420-ish, we reckon about 55 is going to go into transport, and that's from virtually nothing today, right? So transport and the electrification of heat are the two big drivers of, of, of increased, uh, increased demand. That is going to have, uh, it's going to ask serious questions about the resilience of our grid infrastructure. Uh, and um, this is without particularly getting into all of the issues about upgrading the transmission grid so that we can bring offshore wind from Scotland down to here. Um, uh, so, uh, but, but it's also, obviously, as I mentioned, going to have a huge impact on uh, our, our generational capacity, um, which is really quite scary. And just to put some numbers around that, um, uh, we think that it's going to cost about 12.5 billion pounds uh, to upgrade the, uh, the, the, the network infrastructure. Um, uh, look, there are huge caveats, right? These are modeled numbers, right? But you know, just to give a sense of, 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 of scale, um, 450 billion into uh, upgrading generation, increasing generation capacity. And that is using sort of techno-economic modeling mechanisms that try and attract you to the least cost pathways, to most efficient pathways to get there. Um, we think about seven billion is going to have to be spent on public infrastructure, uh, charging infrastructure. About ten and a half will be on home charging, and a couple of billion on depot and workplace. But you know, so the big story is it's all about getting the generation infrastructure in place, um, uh, and and that is and, and and getting getting the transport system right from an energy system point of view is a subset of what we have to do if we're going to achieve CB6 goals, which you know, is clearly very challenging. Um, <clears throat> in, in the, in the uh, task force, we've uh, made a, a series of proposals to government and to industry uh, across two reports. Uh, the headlines are um, uh, that, first of all, smart charging is going to be absolutely essential at every opportunity that you can deploy it, because that is the only way that you can start to integrate the vehicle into the energy system and get synergistic benefits. It gives you, it means that you have cheaper running costs for the car driver, but also much cheaper, you, you much cheaper operating costs for the system as, as a whole. Um, around there, you therefore need a, a very interoperable system because the more islanded the system is, the more duplication and redundancy there will be, and therefore, again, the more cost there will be. Obviously, cybersecurity is a major concern, and, and, and Jeremy and colleagues have done an awful lot of work uh, trying to make sure that this doesn't increase uh, our national cybersecurity cyber exposure. In the matter of public charging, in an ideal world, we'll be building public charging ahead of need so that it starts to defer or, or, or defray the confidence concerns that may be acting as a blocker to uptake. But we'll come back to that in a second. Um, such public charge, well, the public charge points that are built, the public charge infrastructure that is put in place, it needs to be used. Right? It's, it sounds obvious, uh, but for it to be used, 
that means we think it needs to be usable, accessible, um, uh, and, and accessible for everyone, um, visible, so that you know it's there and you've got confidence in it, connected, uh, and we are really worried at the moment, for example, about gaps in the mobile telephony uh, system and what that might mean for uh, resilience in, 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 in charging infrastructure. And as I mentioned, it's got to be secure. Um, a critical missing is local authority capacity. Mm. We believe that getting, getting this to be rolled out in a planned and structured way is going to be really, really important. It builds investor confidence. It enables investment ahead of need by the network operators. And it means that for you know, in residents, we're only digging the roads up once rather than potentially two or three times as we go through the various phases of the transition that we've got. We don't think that local authorities are, with one or two honorable exceptions, remotely, have, have, have remotely got the bandwidth the capacity, the capability to engage in a, a, a trial of this sort, although it is really good to see that in uh, 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 the most recent uh, infrastructure strategy that came out uh, from government, they have put some dedicated support into local authorities to help them get off, uh, get off the, the ground there. So local air energy planning, absolutely fundamentally critical to all of this. Um, and then back to you know, building ahead of need. So ideally, we would build the public infra infrastructure ahead of need. Public infrastructure isn't going to be the main place that people get their electricity from. Most people are going to do that at home or at work. Um, but it's absolutely essential from an equity point of view for those people who don't have access to their own uh, charging, uh, but also is absolutely essential uh, just to build confidence anyway and, and, and defray some of those range anxiety issues. You want to build it ahead of need, but you know, we then get into, so who pays for this? Uh, we've done a lot of work looking at investability, uh, investability around all of this, and, and what we really need to get to is a sweet spot where the price of the electricity is kind of affordable, yeah? uh, but where the charge points themselves are investable and the economics are strong enough that companies still have an investment to keep them working. A lot are you know, not working now basically because no one's making any money out of it, so they don't spend money on, 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 on supporting them. Um, and they need to be sufficiently dense that they, and, and, and accessible, that, as I say, people can see it. That is, a tr try and understand what that might mean in terms of designing an infrastructure. That is a remarkably tight landing pad. Mm. That is a very, very difficult set of almost mutually competing conditions to try and uh, to get right. Because if you think about it, those that argue, oh, we need to have sort of a, you know, five charge points on every street, because that's the way that we'll overcome any of these confidence issues, which I have heard people from the auto sector sort of advocate for, right? So a massive rollout of charging infrastructure. The trouble with that is it will not be used enough. The utilization rates will be so low uh, that the costs uh, uh, will, uh, either people have to end up paying a lot of money for their electricity or we'll end up with something that's simply uninvestable. So getting the sweet spot is, is a real challenge. Um, I'll leave it there. Phil, that's brilliant and, and really clearly set out. And I'm glad you brought into it the context of the energy challenge, because obviously it was one of these areas where we just sort of glibly talk about electrifying everything, but there's a huge amount that needs to happen uh, to enable that. Um, Jeremy, let me bring you in there, because I think Phil set up a lot of what, what I want to bring you in on. Um, as you know, he was talking there about sort of ahead of need, and there have been some concerns that EV charging infrastructure is lagging, if we sort of use that word. Um, you might not agree with that. <laughs> but what do you see as the, the key barriers here in terms of, I mean, Phil mentioned some of them, but how would you characterize yeah. them? Thanks, Tom, for, for your question. And, and uh, thanks to Phil for setting that up uh, very nicely for me. So I, I agree with Phil um, as everything he just said, and I would because I led the technical working group of his task force. So. Uh, we've had many conversations about this, but I want to come to the question of, um, if you like, the premise of the, of the question, which is, is infrastructure lagging behind vehicle sales? I want to come back to that in just a moment, but before I would say that we need to look at, there are two kinds of rollouts going on here. And first, there is a rollout of public charging, and there is also a rollout of private charging. And the barriers to the rollout of private charging are basically 
why would you install a charge point into your home unless you owned a vehicle? So clearly the barrier to the rollout of private charge points, especially in homes, are exactly the same barriers that Aruna just listed so uh, completely and clearly um, earlier on in, in this session. So completely agree with her on those. I would add to it, however, there's one other, and it ties into Phil's point about the absolute necessity for smart charging, which is that one of the barriers to um, EV take-up and to the, the rollout of private charge points is the dearth of dy dynamic time-of-use tariffs. So at the moment, smart charging is just not ubiquitous. Um, we need a much stronger market for flexibility. We need a way of, and I'll, do I need to explain what flexibility is? It's just very, very quickly, it's changing the, the, the demand on the system in order to meet the challenges of the intermittency of supply. Because you're using renewable energy, um, if it's not windy and it's not sunny, then you don't have as much electricity as you might want. Um, so we need flexibility and we need a way of realising that value and returning that value to the consumer. On the public charging point, I would say, um, echoing Phil's point, the key barrier is uncertainty about where to roll out. So um, the Office of Zero Emission Vehicles is looking at some innovative ways to use energy and usage data to inform procurement strategy and planning choices. The EV Energy Task Force has just released an excellent report, which I commend to you, which talks about the challenges for procurement and rollout. And I am currently working on a document with the Green Finance Institute that will be a guide for investors into EV infrastructure, which we hope will be a major contribution to this challenge. Um, do I have time? Could I address the premise of your question now? Would you mind? Do it quickly, and then I'm going to fire another question that you, that we've had. Excellent. Okay. So, so the the the, the question was phrased something like um, infrastructure. The pace of the infrastructure rollout is not keeping pace with electric vehicle sales. Now, there are more than 32,000 public charge points in the UK across nearly 20,000 locations. That's roughly a one-third year-on-year increase since May 2021 and has seen a fourfold increase since 2016 to 2021. Um, clearly, also, there are nearly half a million home or workplace charge points. I agree that that is not sufficient to keep pace with vehicle sales in the sense that electric vehicles to charge points, the ratio, will never be the same as it was in 2016 because these were installed so far ahead of need. But it is by definition fast enough to support a growth in EV sales of which we are justly proud and it's sufficient but also by definition to deliver a market in which the waiting time for an electric vehicle is roughly 6 to 18 months and the waiting time for a private charge point is about 24 hours depending on the installer. So. Um, obviously, the process for installing public charging provision is dependent on local planning permissions, electrical network connections, and so on, not on the availability of the infrastructure. So come back to me when there's a six to 18-month waiting list for a charge point, and we'll talk. Jeremy, thank <laughs> Sorry. No, it's a, really, it's a really fair point that what we, what we mean by keeping pace or lagging or whatever... Uh, the relationship between sales and charging infrastructure is really complex. I was talking to a friend the other day who was an early EV driver, and he was complaining about the fact that he used to be able to drive around and choose between five chargers, which were all, always free. And obviously, those days uh, were not always going to last. Mm. Let me bring in... I've had a, we've got a question here from a, someone watching online. Jeremy, if I could put this to you, specifically about on-street um, chargers. Uh, and it, it hasn't given a name, but they're asking, uh, how do we accelerate the rollout of on-street charging, particularly for people in towns and cities who don't have the, the option of off-street charging? And in particular, how do we do that in a way that's fair for consumers? Yeah, it's, it's so difficult. And we're talking about the just transition, and Phil mentioned the sweet spot. Now, the virtuous cycle, in theory, is that more and more people who have driveways get electric vehicles. Oh, I'm so sorry. My light's gone off because I haven't moved. 
How embarrassing. We can um, still electricity. Hear you, but... <laughs> okay. Um, I, I'm just going to turn my light on. Excuse me. Oh, it's come back on, Jeremy. Oh, no. <laughs> or something like that. There we go. That that has to happen, doesn't it? So, um, you're still do dark, excuse my still, I know I, I look like I'm the whistleblower. Um, <laughs> So, just for those for those people who are just listening to me, the 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 virtuous cycle is that people with driveways get vehicles, so there are more and more electric vehicles on the road, and that drives up demand for on-street charging. Now, clearly, this is too slow for many. Um, I would I would also just add to this that. Local authorities have a great responsibility here and a great challenge that's been discussed already in this session. If I could get slightly political, this is the Institute uh, for Government after all. I would yep. say, um, if, I'm, if, if I may, um, I would say that um, certain economic policies generally over the last 10 or so years have, have been a death of municipal Britain. They have been as a reduction of funds. Austerity was a reduction of funds essentially to local authorities. And so now we are asking local authorities to drive a revolution in infrastructure that they are not being empowered to do. So it is for central government to look at ways to decentralise this rollout Obviously, they need to support that with centralised data, as I discussed for the great work that OZEV is doing. But we do need to empower local authorities to deliver a rollout that people need. And we're not there yet. Jeremy, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to come to the audience briefly. I'm just going to ask one more question of Phil and Aruna. Um, we'll leave you to try and work out your lighting situation there. Um, but thank you for those, for those words. We could hear them very clearly. Yeah. point yeah, to, to what Jeremy just said. And actually, um, uh, Philip, you mentioned this as well. In terms of local authority capacity, um, I've actually had very good experience working with um, the Royal Borough of Greenwich as an example, and they're no, by no means the only uh, local authority um, on those lines. Um, in terms of um, um, uh, trials of smart lampposts on streets, in terms of additional EV charging facilities and so on, and these trials, have had ups and downs, that's the, that's the idea of trials. There's a lot of learning that came out of those and a lot of positive uh, outcomes as well, all of which, this was a research project, an EU-funded research project, and so um, there are playbooks that um, the idea of the project itself was so that what a lo local authority trials could then um, serve as a template for others to be able to use and follow. But coming back to what both Philip and Jeremy said, the reason they were able to do as much as they have, and there's a lot of information on their website, Digital Greenwich website, um, the reason they've been able to do as much is because there was a significant tranche of funding that came from Horizon 2020 that supported them. In the absence of that, the kind of leaps okay. of, of progress they made in the, in the borough would have been practically impossible. So yeah. I think I completely agree with that, I was going to say. Yeah, and I think it's, the, it's the, the, the chief complaint around most of this net zero transition from the local level is lacking capacity and lacking sort of clear long-term certainty about the funding that's yeah. coming through for it. Phil, I know you wanted to come back on some of that. The one question I just wanted to pin you on before uh, opening it up, this question of the kind of the cost model and the sort of how to pay for this infrastructure, and particularly talking about not just in sort of people charging at home, but infrastructure around the country, and how that also relates to this kind of regional issue. Because at the moment we're seeing charging infrastructure that's quite concentrated in particular areas. You talked about that sort of narrow landing pad for sort of mm -hmm. getting that route, but I just wonder how you think that, how we get to that point where we have actually a really good charging infrastructure right across the country. Actually, that plays nicely into what I was just going to build on, on, on with Jeremy's comments. Um, a lot of the progress that's been made so far, as Runa was pointing to, has been as a consequence of subsidy and support, right? And, and the good news is there's a bit more coming in the, whoops, the Levi Fund uh, that again was announced by, uh, uh, by, by, by the DFT in the most recent of the uh, infrastructure strategies. So there is, there is ongoing support there. The real challenge if we are to deliver this at the scale that's going to be necessary is uh, how, how do you move to a properly investable model uh, that uh, big infrastructure, infrastructure funds will be comfortable with putting in place that operators 
uh, feel is, is, is worthwhile getting involved because otherwise it is always going to be fits and starts. It's always going to be reacting to the, the, the latest handout from whichever pu public body it is. Mm. Um, the good news is that we think that um, uh, in time a well-utilized rapid charging hub can start to show, is, well, they're, they're, you know, we're already seeing there is unsubsidized, unsupported investment going into rapid charging hubs anyway. If there is one area uh, that is getting uh, money being put into it, it is, it is in the rapid charging hubs. Um, and don't think of this as being a converted BP petrol station. Um, I'm, I'm much more inclined to think of this as being something happening in you know, supermarket car parks at scale across across the country, right? But rapid charging hubs, so people going in there, using it for 20 minutes or so. If you get the throughput right, you can get the costs way down, even though the uh, the, 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 the the kit costs a lot more. Uh, and so we believe that over time, the costs of doing a, an efficient rapid charging hub start to equate to the costs that someone would see if they were charging at home. Right, that's quite important from an equity and fairness point of view because right now, you know, one of the great fears is someone who's living in a, 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 a flat that does not have access uh, to their own private charging uh, could be paying, you know, orders of you know, multiples yeah. more for electricity uh, than uh, someone in a relatively privileged environment with their Tesla yeah. in the suburbs uh, on, on an appropriate sort of flexible tariff. We think that that can close over time. Um, the challenge is what happens with the slow chargers that are always going to be a key part of the, of the proposition. Mm. And there it has to be about doing everything that we can to continue to reduce the capital cost and the operating cost. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, as some people might be aware, you know, one of the big, one of the good things uh, uh, around the idea that every charge point needs to have a, 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 a uh, a contactless payment system is that it's great for interoperability and convenience. The really bad news is it actually significantly increases, increases the capital and operating costs of a seven kilowatt charger, right? If you're putting that functionality onto a big beast, it doesn't matter so much, but uh, at the margins on, so, so there are some real interesting trade-offs there. Mm. Um, the other thing I'd say just about, uh, 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 about the, the, the wires themselves, um, what is really heartening is that Ofgem have taken on board the idea that you should invest ahead of need. Um, uh, that in the prior pricing round was verboten. Um, they are now opening up more of the connections to uh, uh, RAB investment mechanisms. Um, so regulated asset base investment mechanism. In other words, it isn't that uh, someone needs to always pay the full whack for the incremental connection every time. That still happens to an extent, but the window um, has been diminished significantly. Mm. So there are moves towards uh, smoothing out some of the blockers that were getting in the way of getting the wires connected in the first place uh, uh, to, 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 to people. Uh, there is more to do, and of course then, in the matter of who pays for that, we all do through our electricity bills. Yeah. Yep. That's brilliant, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up that issue of interoperability because I know that's been a, a really prominent concern and we might come back to it later. Open it up to questions from the room. If you could put your hand up and say who you are and where you're from. I'll take the one at the back and the one at the front. Thank you. Emilien Gasque from the EU delegation. Um, I have a, a question for you on, on the one hand. So first, I'm, thank you for your excellent interventions. It's very timely for me as well. I rented an electric car for the first time a weekend last month. Uh, I run into some of the issues you, you described, the, the mobile phone network gaps, uh, also the rental company forgot to attach the charging cables, it was an extra, <laughs> extra handicap. Um, I have a question, uh, almost philosophical, philosophical if you like, taking one step back. On, on the one hand, we are all very convinced that we need to move to EVs, it's important for decarbonization of our economies. The UK has important targets, ex extremely good targets. Yesterday we had good news from the European Parliament on their position on this issue. We hope to have good news from the Council on 28 June. Um, on the other hand, we know that even if we replace every car with an electric vehicle, we'll still be left with some issues. I'm not even talking supply chains, I'm talking tire abrasion, um, car-dominated urban landscapes. We see more and more anecdotal evidence of people on wheelchairs, for instance, struggling with cables on the, on the pavement. Um, 
do you think this notion of promoting soft mobilities or alternatives is tangible enough for governments to act on, these governments or other governments? Is it not sexy enough compared to rolling out EVs? <laughs> Thank you, Emilian. And you can take the question down here. Aruna. Thank you. Matthew Hills from PwC Consulting. Um, you mentioned briefly the levy fund. Um, what are your thoughts, hopes, fears on this, especially thinking about how you mentioned the capacity of local authorities to actually bid for this, fund for this? Could levy solve this problem or not? <laughs> okay, brilliant. Um, Aruna, I might come to you first on yeah. Emilian's question there, because I think it's interesting to note you know, the EU targets and the sort of worldwide shift, but actually this question of are we encouraging modal shift as well? Does yeah. that seem exciting yeah. enough? Yeah, um, and that's, I think, exactly how you put it, which is it's a philosophical question, absolutely. But I think it's also true that electrification of private vehicles is not the only part of the policy agenda. There's a much wider policy agenda, um, part of which is getting people back to some extent onto public transport. It has improved since the worst of, of the scenarios during the pandemic, but it's still behind where it used to be. And in fact, we need to not just get back there, we need to expand it further. So there are these issues and there are considerations such as road user charging, for instance. Um, in fact, one of the research studies that I'm currently doing is exactly to understand the potential implications of road user charging and travel behavior, including mode shifts. Um, um, uh, we've collected data in the context of Birmingham end of last year, um, around the time that they started their clean air zones. And uh, we are actually planning a survey in, um, in towards the end of July in London, which is gonna examine two forms of road user charging. This is a research study. One which is uh, a cordon-based road user charging, somewhat similar to the congestion charging zone. And the other is a per mile charging. So that we're trying to see what the relative effects of some of these um, road charging policies could look like. And there's a lot, I think, that even the, the, the London mayor and other um, planning authorities around the UK have um, have been talking about in terms of um, furthering agendas that promote active travel um, modes of public transport and so on. So I think this is part of a bigger package of policies. It should, in fact, be part of a bigger package of policies that are considered. And you mentioned things like um, pavements and, um, and uh, uh, pedestrian and or wheelchair access and so on. So there's the questions of urban design. Lots of things are inevitably going to come into this picture. And I think they, sh they all deserve to be uh, focused on. And that's partly what some of the equity issues are about. It's not just about access to um, public transport, oh, sorry, electric vehicles or the charge or cost of electric vehicles. It's also an overall accessibility on the transport network in such a future with electric vehicles. That's really what we mean when we say equity. Um, so yes. Yeah. <laughs> David, I might bring you in on that point, because I know that you look not just at the UK, but also at other countries. And on this question of, you know, are we just thinking too much about switching one set of cars out and another set of cars in? Are we thinking about this broadly? We've also had another question from someone watching online who's asked about whether, we, whether the panel sort of sees the approach to ownership of cars changing as part of this transition. I just wondered if you had thoughts on that, both as sort of whether you're seeing that sort of thinking in the UK or, or, or actually in other places where you look? Sure, no, thank you. Two, two very good questions. I, I would agree with what Aruna was saying. We need to uh, prioritise, really, um, how we think about mobili mobility. Um, and, and ultimately, that should be uh, encouraging personal mobility wherever possible, walking, cycling, uh, then public transport. And then if we have to use cars, uh, EVs, and if possible, sharing them. So um, the shared sort of model is growing. Um, it hasn't yet proved to be commercially that attractive to auto firms. So we've seen several car clubs run, for example, by BMW, then merging with Daimler, now being taken over by Stellantis. I think that can still work in big cities. So this shift towards uh, shared car use, where you effectively pay per hour to use an electric vehicle, I think is, is going to be a good way forward for many. Of course, in the future, and this is a lot further down the line than electric vehicles, we will be looking at autonomous electric vehicles. So the driverless cars in some of our big cities, at least. And that, again, will be um, a big changer and then raise the question of whether you really need to own a car or not, or whether simply um, pay to access one. Mm. Just 
a very couple of quick points, if I could, in relation to what's been said already, which is very, very interesting. Local authorities, in many cases, are hollowed out after years of austerity. They have very little bandwidth to do anything here. So uh, saying to local authorities, oh, you can bid for some money. Well, you know, they are struggling to do basic things like find special needs places for kids in school, let alone bid for pots of money to start putting in EV charging infrastructure. So that's going to be very challenging. Where there may be some interest, I think, is at the regional scale where we've created combined authorities or things like the Midlands engine. There may be more bandwidth to think regionally in that sense rather than local authority. And for example, Midlands engine has done some really interesting work look, coming up with a kind of toolkit to help local authorities and others think about, well, where can we have charging points that, as Philip was saying, will be purely commercially viable? In other cases, where is it going to need to be a public-private partnership? And in other cases, you may not be able to get any private investment in, but you need some sort of infrastructure. So how could you, say, bundle rights to have charging points in different places, but make sure it includes an obligation to provide a charging access somewhere which a, a private investor may not want to uh, do? One final point is I think we are going to have to start looking at regulation. Now, there's an issue here because it may scare off the investors that Philip was talking about. But we're going to have to move to some sort of regulation of what effectively is going to be a utility, mm -hmm. um, including things over not only accessibility and pricing and transparent transparency of pricing, but also reliability. I mean, the figures that we were getting earlier from jo Jeremy about how many charging points there are, you know, I was one of those geeky early adopters that's been driving an EV for 10 years. A lot of time I'll turn up at a charging point, it's clapped out and it isn't working. So something like one in 10 charging points at any moment in time simply doesn't work. Now, that is not going to be uh, something that isn't going to encourage a big changeover. So at some point, we've got to look at regulating this as well. Yeah. Thank you, David. And I'm going to come back to you in a moment because we've got some interesting questions coming in online about global supply chains, which I think I'd like to um, direct your way. But Philip and, and Jeremy, I might ask you to pick up uh, that question from Matthew and some of the things uh, David was saying there about local authorities' ability to kind of bid into some of these large funding pots that we're seeing down the line. And I suppose, sort of, David, bigger point there that, you know, this is a market that needs to become as seamless and as easy as a kind of basic utility that we can rely on that is available on a mass scale. And just that, that kind of challenge and whether we're quite on track for that. But, Philip, I'll come to you first. Um, thanks. Uh, so, I mean, I think we all subscribe to the, uh, the, the view that, you know, the local authorities have got a big role to play, but they're hollowed out and uh, don't have the bandwidth to play it at the moment. Uh, I do think that were someone from OZEV here, they would point to the fact that alongside the Levi Fund, there was also some funding that was put together specifically to help local authorities have access to more support in this area to help them play into it. So they did try to think about both sides of the equation. Is it enough? You know, there will always be uh, a, 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 a case that, no, it's inadequate, there should be more. But, you know, it, at least there was some, some real evidence of, you know, joining up some of the dots there to try and uh, 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 address the issue. Jeremy, did you want to come back on um, on David's points there? Yeah, yes, yes, thank you. Thank you. So. Um, I, I agree with your points about regulations, David. I think that product standards are what separates us from the lower orders of the animals. So I'm absolutely in favour uh, in, in that sense of sensible regulation that delivers a better consumer experience and a better infrastructure rollout. No questions. Um, so just to confirm, I do represent the technology providers um, here. Now, um, there's be, there have been a lot of calls from the vehicle manufacturers and the SMMT in particular in light of the zero emission vehicle mandate to place a similar sort of mandate on the infrastructure. Um, I don't think you're going to get very much argument from me or from my members of against um, a mandate, a national mandate for a public rollout of their products. So I don't think we're going to push back on that too hard. I just wanted to make my earlier points just to say that we're like, don't, don't kick us too hard. That's all. Um, 
What I would say just quickly about the regulations, though, there already are regulations and there are some look, being looked at a lot at the moment, particularly around access to public charge points to make sure that um, things are right for someone who is maybe visibly impaired, although clearly if they're charging a car, very often they're going to be driving it, so they may not be very visually impaired, but also um, people with certain physical disabilities or, or other needs, those things are being looked at now, and um, I, I believe there's a, a publicly available specification un underway to in inform some of that. So things are improving, ditto with the capacity and capability and resources of local authorities. I would like to see if there is an infrastructure mandate as per what the SMMT has been calling for, I would need to see that partnered with an empowerment of local authorities to actually meet those mandates. And that would be a very, very powerful way of solving this problem. Yeah, that, that's really useful. Philip, do you want to come back briefly uh, yeah, on that? So uh, this is perhaps another philosophical conversation. Um, you know, mandates, who do you mandate? Mandating on uh, changing from one kind of car to another kind of car, it's really relatively straightforward. You mandate the, uh, the car manufacturer. Mandating the uh, uh, progressive uh, uh, reduction in sulfur levels in fuel, right? You, you put the mandate or the regulation or the requirement on the fuel supply companies. Who do you mandate? Who do you hold under an obligation to deliver a brand new infrastructure. Mm. If you turn around to the charge point operators and say, we mandate you to build X a number of fresh charge points, they'll say, well, that's great. How much money are you going to pay me? Mm. Uh, can you mandate a local authority? Well, if so, how do you give them the wherewithal to actually deliver that mandate? Because investment is required. Is it, it would end up being the government putting a mandate on itself in some form of way. And then you get into a really interesting question about who pays, because it seems to me that that drives you almost inevitably to an end state where you simply say, right, EV charging infrastructure from soup to nuts is a regulated asset base uh, investment, uh, and everything will be centrally planned. Um, and, and I worry uh, that we lack the capacity, the bandwidth, and the tools uh, to um, really feel comfortable uh, that uh, a bunch of local government officers and others uh, in a room would be able to deliver the best possible outcome for consumers uh, in that, especially given how much uncertainty there is about what future consumer wants and requirements are. Markets are still pretty good at responding to uh, consumer wants, rather better, I would argue, than many centrally planned approaches are. So, so I, I think from a cultural point of view, a who pays point of view, and a fundamental institutional obligation point of view, mandates on putting out infrastructure are in practice almost nonsensical beyond getting to a point where you've got something where the government accepts that it has a legally, a, a legally binding target to do something by somewhere, sometime, as, is, as we have with carbon budgets. Um, you know, going much beyond that, I really struggle. Hmm. I think I was just going to say, I agree with you with the caveat that markets um, can lead segments of the population behind. Oh. With uh, that caveat. I, I, and so I, I agree. That's, that's where, where regulation is exactly. necessary as well. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Market and, and not only that, I mean, also, you look at the functioning of the energy market recently, it hasn't done a lot of people much good if it ends up being dominated by a few big players that can charge very high prices. So there are issues about competition failure as well, mm. let's face it. Yeah. Could, could I add also that uh, I think Phil's point is strengthened by the fact that, and we may not have said this clearly enough in this session, but the where charge points are is much more important than how many they are. Mm. So as per Phil's first point, it's the usage that you worry about. It's not how many unused charge points are in the supermarket car park. Mm. Thank you all. I mean, it's, it's such an interesting discussion because this balance of the extent to which you need a central planner versus you allow the market and consumers to drive this transition, it cuts right across this net zero transition. And Absolutely. I want to bring in another yeah. audience question. If anyone else in the audience has a question, please put your hand up now. Yeah, I'll take that one as well. Go ahead. Hello, uh, Tobias Burke from Stonehaven. Um, 
David mentioned earlier uh, how it's, uh, it's true the cost of electric vehicles and the primary driver in the reduction in their cost over the last 10 years has been the dramatic reduction in the cost of lithium-ion batteries. We've seen already this year um, an increase in cost for critical materials um, that have gone into these vehicles, and the, uh, Benchmark Minerals estimates that there's going to be a lot more disruption for materials like lithium over the decade. Um, the UK is due to publish its critical material strategy later this year. Just a sort of a general question to the panel. Um, what, in your mind, needs to be in the critical material strategy? Brilliant. I did not know we had a critical material strategy. That's reassuring. Um, and you. Hi, Paul Wittlesey from the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities. Um, just wondering about battery technology and kind of linked, to, I guess, in terms of materials. How, how much is the emerging and rapidly changing sort of um, outlook for battery technology going to perhaps change some of this discussion? Um, so if you've got batteries, say some of the solid state ones I'm hearing about, um, you know, you could charge much more quickly. Does that mean that you actually need so many um, chargers, for instance? Uh, are, we, are we going to you know, we want to build ahead, but are we going to actually just be building a load of stuff that isn't going to get used um, if things could be charged as quickly as you can, you know, fill up a petrol station? Thanks. Brilliant question about supply chains and technological uncertainty there. We've got five minutes left. David, I'm going to come to you first, and then I'll come to the rest of the panel. Um, if you want to wrap any final comments or responses to other people's uh, things that have been said, um, then maybe do that in, in these comments. We'll probably have chance to go one more time round. But David, first on that question from Tobias, I mean, some really interesting points there about lithium and, you know, the, the sort of resilience of these supply chains and also the costs. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's going to be a, a really the key determinant of at what point parity is reached in terms of the upfront cost of a battery electric vehicle as against an internal combustion engine. So as demand for critical components goes up, the price does. Some, some EV manufacturers already complaining about that, and it, it may push backwards uh, the, the point at which parity is reached. Um, I think there's a number of things there. We're seeing quite a lot of innovation in terms of battery types and different batteries being developed essentially for different purposes. So, you know, just to give you one example, um, the battery going into a standard Tesla Model 3 is increasingly using cheaper components that are more abundant, perfectly good range for most people. The long range version has a more expensive battery that uses more expensive material. So a lot of battery innovation taking place, that will continue. Um, in terms of the um, critical material strategy, I think that's a really good point that you've made. Um, where uh, manufacturers source their key components from will be increasingly important. One of the things that we've got to develop much more uh, better in the UK is a, is a circular economy, whereby we recycle batteries and reuse them for other things. That could be into home energy storage, um, or it could be recycling the batteries and getting the materials back out of them to make new batteries again. So a real circular economy strategy, I think, could help on that. Um, te battery technology, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the holy grail is solid state batteries still a long way off. But what we are seeing is really big improvements in the charging infrastructure. So, you know, CCS technology coming on stream in a big way, that will get faster and faster. Um, the kind of key point, I think, is if you can pull in, charge your car to say 80% in seven minutes, that's about the time it takes to go and get a coffee uh, and have a leak. And at that point, it really makes no difference whether you're driving an internal combustion engine or an EV because you can charge extremely quickly. So it's not just the batteries, but it's the, the charging technology as well that's getting better. David, just on the international relations involved there, I mean, should we be worried about being reliant on lots of both cars and components that are coming from China or, or other places? I mean, we see this kind of increasing strategic competition over materials and things like that. Yes, uh, we should. Um, I think that is going to be a big issue going forward. And it's interesting that that is why the EU is putting so much effort into developing its own battery supply chain through the European Battery Alliance. So, uh, yes, it is. 
Um, and, you know, that, that may be an important part in future trade deals, for example, in terms of can we do trade deals with countries like Australia where we could get some of the raw materials from. That's a fascinating point. Thank you. Jeremy, did you want to come in on either of those questions? Um, so thank you. Yeah, maybe just a tiny bit of self-promotion. So Beamer has been uh, working very hard also with the Energy Systems Catapult to lay the groundwork for a supply chain council that, uh, we, that will be government-led. And absolutely what we need to see from that in the context of the critical material strategy is a commitment to circular economy. I would also add to what David has said um, by saying, yes, of course, we should worry about um, how much we can produce ourselves. But I would argue that what we need to see from that council is also a commitment to free trade. So a commitment to managing the self-harm that was Brexit, a commitment to managing the very, very real and sometimes underplayed supply challenges, uh, supply chain challenges um, that we're facing. And my final point is just absolutely battery technology has the potential to be an absolute game changer on this one and to completely change the infrastructure uh, discussion. Philip, I thought... Paul's question about technological uncertainty was a really interesting one because we've discussed all of this as if it's a kind of fixed picture, but actually it's a moving one. No, it's a really good question, right? Because at the heart, we've got the asymmetry of payback. Uh, you know, infrastructure, 20 to 40 year investments. Uh, vehicles, decade, cradle to grave for a, a new car. I'm kind of looking at David here, but I, I, think, I think most car companies would think in sort of 10 year uh, for, 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 for model families, uh, and yes, of course right. tech is single years, right? One or two years. Uh, and so we've got these, these very asymmetric uh, cycles playing out, uh, and so there is a risk of stranded infrastructure. Um, uh, it's something that we haven't kind of got a glib answer to yet, uh, but in the next phase of work that we'll be doing, um, uh, the catapult will be uh, doing some work along with the Advanced Propulsion Center. Uh, so bringing together what we understand about trends in terms of charging infrastructure and, and, and what the APC and, and Faraday beyond it is, is, is bringing in uh, around where trends are in terms of batteries. And of course, it isn't what the theoretical possibility is. Uh, it is gonna be what's gonna be in cars uh, 10 or 15 years hence and therefore what do infrastructure providers need to be thinking about so that in 10 or 15 years time we've got the, uh, the, the right outcome. I, you know, just as an aside though, I think that this really, you know, there are some really difficult questions in the short term around what is rolled out and where. Uh, and, and it comes back to, you know, the seven kilowatt curbside charger. It has an obvious appeal because of its convenience. Uh, it creates some of the issues uh, around parking wars and, 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 and like. It struggles now a little bit uh, because it doesn't have the utilization rates that can be got from faster charging mechanisms. If we're in a world where we really are looking at seven minute charge times, it does sort of suggest that there will be, uh, uh, in terms of public charging infrastructure, an almost inexorable shift over time uh, towards, you know, recharging mechanisms that would feel quite familiar to someone driving an internal combustion engine. Uh, now, but that's, that's being very, very theoretical, right? Because the, the, but the, but the real challenge is if you've got a slow charger, how many kilowatts can you sell? Can you, how many kilowatt hours can you sell in a, in a given period? And therefore, what are, the, what are the returns on the investment likely to be? So you've got to get those capital costs down, and it just puts even more pressure on reducing the capital cost of a slower charge point if it's to stay competitive in this dynamic, in, in this dynamic world. Aruna, final word from you. Yeah, just, just a couple of points, and, and related though different, which is about the charging infrastructure. Uh, I think Jeremy mentioned the point about flexibility, um, and vehicles, whatever the type of vehicles, do have some flexibility, either overnight charging, work-based charging, apart from these instances when they're plugged in on the way to somewhere and need to be done in seven minutes. And um, I think that uh, we, we, nearly six, seven years ago, uh, we did a piece of work where we were comparing what we then called dumb charging and smart charging and, and, um, and dynamic uh, pricing of two kinds, time of use uh, or time of day pricing, but also uh, demand-driven dynamic pricing, which is going further. 
And the, the benefits of some of these things are dramatic and huge. And um, I actually find it somewhat frustrating because we've reached out to energy service providers multiple times about the value of some of this dynamic um, pricing and experimenting and, and collecting data to understand it. And somehow, most of them tend to be short-sighted. It's not in their immediate agenda because there's so many other important things. And I can understand there's so many other important things they're dealing with, uh, crises they're dealing with. So I think that uh, that's something that we shouldn't underestimate the value of, uh, of the, the pricing mechanisms and so on and, and exploiting flexibility. Uh, another thing I'll say is, um, I think, Philip, it was you who mentioned China in the context of just vehicles uh, coming from there at the moment. Oh, or was it David? I'm sorry. Um, but I think that uh, what I find fascinating about China is I'm working with some researchers there, and they have data from the charging patterns of every single electric vehicle in the country, literally, mm. over a period of three years. And the kind of analysis you can do with something like that, obviously that's not open to me. I work with them with methods. They deal with the data. But the kind of analysis you could do with something like that is huge. And there's so many questions you can answer, which is, I think, um, quite valuable. I'll Brilliant. stop with that. That's a, that's a fascinating final point to finish on. Um, so that's all we've got time for. Um, just as a reminder, we've got um, upcoming events in this series with Imperial. We've got uh, one on green skills at the end of this month. That's on the 29th. Uh, and we've got a Data Bytes special on climate change, hearing about all sorts of things happening with exciting data. That could be one of the presentations, if we'd known about that. Um, that's happening next month. Um, so it just remains for me to say thanks again to Imperial for sponsoring this. Uh, thank you for coming and for your great questions. And thanks to my brilliant panel for a really great discussion. <laughs>